done. Kids, you're dismissed. Head out to big city. This is Baptism Sunday, and baptism is really a celebration of the salvation that we have in Christ. Um, we're going to get to celebrate that. And if you have received that salvation and have never been baptized, I would encourage you to consider that even for this morning. Hey, we have extra towels. You can do this. Um, I mean, wouldn't that make an incredible Memorial Sunday uh, 2022? Uh, get baptized. I just encourage you to be listening to the promptings of the Spirit. Um, we're moving into our final week of the sermon series on, on the proclamations of the early church about Jesus. And we've been seeing a lot of baptisms, right? We've been seeing uh, all these people coming to know the Lord. Um, and this week we're in Acts chapter 17. If you want to be turning with me in your Bibles to Acts 17. Um, now we're going to be finishing with Acts 17, but that's not the end of the book. Um, this is, Acts is just a great history book of the church, and I would just encourage you to continue to read on through the rest of that and just check out what else is there. Um, as we left last week, Paul and Silas, they were in modern-day Greece. Um, they were in the city of Philippi. And as we catch up with them in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 17, um, they've been um, they've moved Philippi, moved from Philippi, and they're moving down this popular trade route. They're moving further and further away from Jerusalem and further and further into a land where there are less and less Jews, right? Into these, this kind of unknown area for them. And along the route, they pass through these, a few different cities that are mentioned in the first part of chapter 17, and, and eventually they arrive in Thessalonica, which is actually 100 miles from last week's location. And I don't think they were driving cars, right? Um, Thessalonica, it's a prominent city. Unlike Philippi, it actually has a synagogue, so there's enough um, Jews around that they had a synagogue. And as was the custom, Acts 17, verse 2, as was Paul's custom, his pattern of reaching out to the Jews first, Paul went into the synagogue of Thessalonica, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. We've seen this over and over, these proclamations about Jesus. Also, another normal part of the pattern that we've seen over and over again through the last few weeks um, Always there's someone responding to the gospel. When the gospel is shared, someone's responding. The good news is that Jesus came to save them. Verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And also, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, there's another pattern that's been developing that we see in verse 5. <laughs> but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. <laughs> and again, these Jews are not against, really, this Jesus being the Messiah message. They're actually upset because of all these Gentiles that are being included in the people of God. Large groups of Greeks are among those who are actually responding favorably to the Gospels. So what was the problem with these troublemaker Jews? 
Well, they were ticked off that they had to share their club with other people, right? Um, And as we follow the story in Acts 17, the believers in Thessalonica, they have to actually take Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they kind of force them out of town. They said, you guys aren't safe here. You got to go. So under the cover of darkness, they send them off, and they end up in the town of Berea next, some 50 miles from Thessalonica. It's another long walk, right? Again, what do they do? Well, they start in the Jewish synagogue, and they start sharing the good news about Jesus with the Jews there. Everything's going well. Verse 11, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica, those troublemakers from over there, 50 miles away, learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them all up. So here we go again, kind of the continuing of that pattern, right? Well, this time, the believers there Instead of sending all three of them off, they actually just send off Paul. They think, you know, you're the prominent one of the group. You must be the one they don't like. So you, Paul, get to leave, and Silas and Timothy get to stay here. So that's what they did. They escorted Paul out of town. He went down the coast of Greece to Athens, 200 miles away. Um, And they had plans for the three to get back together at some point, Um, Silas Timothy to join later. In Athens, we've heard of Athens before, right? This is the place where this uh, this last proclamation that we're going to look at takes place. And at the point that Paul arrives in Athens, it's about 50 AD. And Athens is no longer that prominent city that it had been four centuries, really, earlier. Um, but it still very much has a reputation for being an intellectual, cultural center. Really, almost the, the intellectual, cultural center for the known world. It's where everybody kind of went to to talk about new ideas and think through new things. And, and we've watched as the gospel about Jesus is, is spread, as we've looked, looked at this the last six weeks. The gospel started with these, the Jews, right? And then it moved on to these God-fearing Gentiles in Asia. And then it moved on from there to God-fearing Gentiles in Europe. And last week, we got to see the gospel actually shared with this basically non-religious pagan Roman citizen, the jailer, um, people who really didn't know anything about the Jewish faith before then. And this week, we will close our sermon series looking at the gospel reaching the Gentile intellectuals, those, those philosophers that we find in Athens. So read with me starting in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, and we'll just kind of start there and work through the story together. Um, verse 16 says, while Paul was waiting for them, talking about Silas and Timothy in Athens, um, he, great, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, full of idols. So obviously Paul hadn't been hanging out in the hotel. He was wandering around town and he sees all these idols everywhere. And if you know anything about Athens, if you're a history buff, world history buff, you know that that wouldn't be surprising. Even today you go to Athens and you, you see many, many gods, the, the statues, the 
artwork, the, the temples of all these various gods and goddesses. They're very much panthe pantheistic and, or polytheistic, and, um, and it makes up what they call the Greek pantheon of gods, right? But nevertheless, Paul, being a monotheist, someone who believed in one god, um, would have had a strong distaste for the whole scene. So, so what does Paul do? Instead of just hanging around waiting for his friends to show up, he decides to start his pattern. What does he do? He goes to the local synagogue and he begins to start teaching. Verse 17, it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. Then he throws in another part of, for part of his routine, um, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happen to be there. So Paul wasn't just going to the synagogue. Now he's actually just going to the marketplace wherever all the people are um, wanting to talk to anyone that's willing to talk to him, right? That's Paul for us. He's not afraid to talk to these uh, intellectuals, these, these um, um, possibly an intimidating group, right? If you think about it, he's just willing to talk to anyone about Jesus. Verse 18, it says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. And some of them asked, what is this babbler talk, trying to say? I mean, I kind of like the, the conversation we get to see in the story. What is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And I kind of take this part as kind of entertaining. Um, whenever you get to hang out with academics, what are they usually doing? They're usually talking to each other, and they're usually talking over the top everyone else. They're using these big words um, so they don't have to talk to us common people, right? Um, so we kind of see this um, with this conversation. They're not actually talking to Paul. They assume that Paul's clueless. What is this babbler talking about, right? And what are they accusing Paul of? Advocating foreign gods, plural. Gods. <laughs> And that definitely wouldn't have been the case for Paul. He's definitely believing in one God. And the next verse actually explains why they were confused. The rest of verse 18 there, it said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And really, Jesus and the resurrection would have been two topics that they weren't super familiar with. That, isn't, that wasn't a common uh, thing that people talked about that far away from um, Jerusalem. So needless to say, as Paul's interacting with these different people, he gets their attention, so much so that he is brought into a meeting of the Areopagus. Um, verse 19, then they took him, brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, uh, where they, they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. And it says in parentheses there, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And you know anybody like that? <laughs> so this Areopagus that, that Paul's being taken to, um, it was the high court of the first century Athens, and it was where they would have officially handled any of these kind of conversations, these new ideas. They would have... Um, brought in the people and discussed them and, and worked through the issue together. Um, now, there's a lot of discussion here, a lot of debate among scholars 
whether Paul is actually taken there to be put on trial or whether Paul goes there informally and they just want to know what he's talking about, right? But the difficulty that they had with Paul was not that he was advocating more than one God because they believed that there was all sorts of gods. What they had a problem with Paul, with Paul was the beef that they had with, with Paul was that he was introducing a new God, a foreign God. And if you know your history, the Areopagus was the ruling body that Socrates had to go before on trial 400 years earlier where he was accused of the very same thing, introducing foreign gods. And what did they end up doing with Socrates? Socrates for the Bill and Ted fans in, in, the, in here. Anyone know Bill and Ted's? What was that? Um, I'm not sure how they poisoned him, but they killed him. They executed him for introducing foreign gods. So this group that Paul's introduced to, not the safest group for him to talk to, right? Who knows what's going to happen? So again, this is really interesting to me because they're so far away from Jerusalem. I mean, what is Paul going to say to a people who don't know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They don't know um, Jesus all that well? How does he share the good news about Jesus with a people group that has no Jewish background, right? I mean, is, is, this, is the good news that comes through Jesus, as we've been talking about, is it really for all people, including the intellectuals of, of Athens? Well, Paul actually here proceeds to give us this great example, not, not a formula, mandated formula for sharing the gospel, but a really a great example of how to connect with people who maybe don't have a background with knowing things about Jesus or knowing things about the Jews. And this is our proclamation for this week, beginning with verse 22. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, he's kind of introducing this idea that he sees what they're doing and, and he actually gives them a compliment, doesn't he? Hey, you guys are really religious. Good job. You're doing good with this stuff. I mean, what does it show us about Paul? He hasn't just come in here not knowing anything about the audience he's about to speak to. He actually has been wandering around. He has been looking around. He's been paying attention and having some conversations and learning about all this Greek stuff that's around him, right? He doesn't just barge in and make accusations. He actually builds a bridge to them instead. He gives them a compliment. But he also, you also knows that he doesn't stop with the compliment. He's not afraid to challenge them as well, but not just challenge him in a way that they won't understand what he's talking about. He's going to challenge them in a way that, that they could relate. And one thing that's really interesting in this in this chapter is that Paul, you know one thing that he didn't use when he was sharing the gospel? He didn't use scripture. He didn't use scripture at all, which wouldn't have been helpful because would, scripture would have been unknown to them, right? So instead of using scripture, he zeroes in on this idol that he had observed as he had been walking around their town. And then he uses language and ideas that they would have been familiar with. The second part of verse 23, Paul says, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you were ignorant of the very thing you worship. 
And this is what I want to talk to you about today, right? This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I mean, what Paul is doing here is brilliant. Um, by connecting what he's about to talk to, the, to this unknown God, he's not actually offering them a new God, right? This God has been in their system. He's just unknown to them. He's taking advantage of this unknown God that they don't know anything about. So who, who is this God that, that Paul's going to introduce to them? Well, Paul refers to him as the creator God. Verse 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, which immediately makes him different than any other Greek god because all the Greek gods were built by humans. They looked like humans, right? Verse 25, And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So Paul's introducing this universal creator who is the Lord God, and he actually shows to the Greeks that this God is actually greater than any of their other gods by pointing out two different things. For one, um, this God can't be contained like the other gods in their temples, in their shrines, in their, in their idols. And also, this God's existence is not dependent on humans. Anything that, that those Greek gods needed, they had to get it from humans. Humans had to serve them. But quite the opposite with this creator God that Paul was describing for them. This creator God, he needs no one to help him. In fact, he provides all things for all beings. This creator God is a God that these Greeks should embrace because he's the greatest God of all. So what does this relationship between this God and humanity look like? Well, Paul goes on to explain that in verse 26. It says, From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in, histories, in history and the boundaries of their lands. So who is Paul talking about? He's talking about the Genesis account, isn't he? Talking about this this God who created people groups, starting from one particular man, turning into a people group, and this God guides history and even places people where they live, um, directs history. I mean, does that story sound familiar? It should. That's the God of Scripture, right? But we don't see Paul actually using Scripture to talk about it. Paul's not keeping to this strict history of the Jewish people because it wouldn't be helpful they don't even know who the Jews are, right? What's Paul doing? He's actually unifying the history of the entire human race. He's saying, hey, this is how we all got started. This creator God created this, started with this first man, and he developed groups of people, and he sent them all around and with the purpose of inhabiting the whole earth. That's the scriptural story, isn't it? And then Paul offers a second purpose for humanity in verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps actually reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. You notice that's a quote. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So this God that Paul is describing, he's a God who has designed the human race to seek relationship with him, 
This God who is near us. <laughs> and this God is involved in, in an intimate way with every, every being on the planet. Paul quotes this passage saying, for in him we live, we move, we have our being. Where does this come from? Does it come from scripture? No. It actually comes from the Greeks' own poets. These Greeks are already talking about this God. And Paul's taking advantage of that. Paul is saying to them, this concept of this God that, that I'm describing to you, this, this God is, is not new. Human life is created and sustained by this God. As you have said, your people have already written about him. We are his offspring. He created us. We are made in his image, not the other way around. I mean, you think about the Greeks. They created their gods through their own ingenuity, right? And what did their gods look like? They, their gods looked like them. But, but here Paul is suggesting that, that we are the offspring of this God, which means that we are actually in the image of God. It starts with God first. And we see that in verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. I mean, why would God be gold? Why would God be stone? Um, why would God be made by us when we were made by him? So here he is pushing for, against creating idols, but he's also pushing them in a new direction. Listen to the next verse in verse 30. It says, in the past, God overlooked such, such ignorance, this ignorance of not knowing that God created us. <laughs> um, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You see the inclusive language there? All people everywhere. We've been noticing as we've gone through this story the last few weeks in Acts that, that Paul was not just after the Jews, was he? He was after everyone everywhere. Everyone. <laughs> so everyone needed to turn from their ignorant ways about God. They, wanted, they needed to turn to God's ways. We have a common ancestry. Paul's already discussed that as the human race. And we now have a common need for repentance, to live into God's ways for us. And then he goes on in the next verse to actually start talking about how this urgency um, of this call of repentance. Paul says next, God has determined a day that this humanity, this, the human race, is going to be judged. It's the culmination of human history when justice would rule. Is justice an important ideal? <laughs> it definitely was for, for those in Athens. They talked about justice a lot. And I think that's an ideal that, that all of us have. As the human race, we all desire justice, don't we? And Paul is saying here that this justice is going to come through this God this God that he's talking about, this unknown God. But listen how Paul describes this coming of justice happens in this world. Verse 31, For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. There's a man he has appointed, which wouldn't have been unusual for the, for the Greeks to have some important person be in charge of that. But then he goes on to talk about the proof of how you will know who that man is. He has given proof of this to everyone 
by raising him from the dead. So it will be this man who was raised from the dead who will come and be appointed to judge the world. Paul doesn't mention him by name, right? Hasn't used scripture at all, but he does offer some proof in how to identify this man. God raised him from the dead. You guys know who he's talking about? The resurrection is such an important part of the gospel story. The resurrection is such an important part of God's plans to save and to bring hope. For the Jews, Jesus being raised from the dead, as we've noticed the last three weeks, as we've, they've proclaimed the gospel, um, Jesus being raised from the dead to the Jews was proof that Jesus was what? The Messiah. The one who would come to save. But now Paul is actually including all people in this. The resurrection provides validation that Jesus is actually truly part of God's plan for this planet, the whole planet, for all of humanity. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God reveals his saving purposes, not just for the Jews, but for all of us. Christ died once for all. And through his resurrection, God proved that he was behind it all. And as Paul has said, God has, has had, uh, can't speak. Paul has uh, said, God has made humans in such a way that they yearn, they seek for this God, this all-powerful creator God who has sent this Savior into the world. Where once the humanity was ignorant of how to search for that God, that time of ignorance has passed. He may have been the unknown God, but now he can be known. They have a way to God. And it is through the man who would bring justice to the world. The one who would die for their sins. The one who would bring hope to all people. What a proclamation, right? Can you imagine that speech happening in front of such important philosophers? What kind of response do you think he got? <laughs> well, like all of his opportunities in giving the good news, it was mixed. Some people, as verse 32 says, it says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. They didn't understand resurrection. It wasn't a part of their processing. They... But others, it says, we want to hear you again on this subject. They were interested. Can you tell us more about this God? Can you tell us more about this man? And at that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Interesting story. You think Paul ever got to the point of actually mentioning who the man was, what his name was? I'm pretty sure, as we've looked at the other stories, that, you know, and he had clearly taught about Jesus in other places, that he definitely would have got to a place where he shared about Jesus. He's just trying to take, the, take it in steps, trying to introduce the idea to them and bring them along in the story. And really, so should we. We should make the gospel understandable and help people to uh, navigate the, what in the world we're even talking about, Right? as we take those opportunities to share. But we also see in Paul an effort to connect the good news um, 
in a way that's really informed. I mean, you see in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about this principle. He says, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in his blessings. And we see that illustrated. He's willing to, to learn about other people groups. He's learning, wants to know where they're coming from so that he can better talk to them about life and, and bring them along. He's, he's building a bridge that they can walk across to Christ, right? And it's through this, this knowledge of the Greek culture. Do you think that knowledge of Greek culture was just automatically put in the Paul's brain? <laughs> no, he had to work at this, right? He would have had to go and do some studying and then figure out what in the world they were doing, <laughs> these Greeks. And he wants them to actually understand kind of an interesting perspective that, that God is actually at work in them even before he got there. That, that the writings that they have, the readings that they, they have, um, they're actually bits and pieces of truth that God has been already speaking to them about and drawing them to himself. The God who pursues them. It's an interesting God, right? Proclamation of the church reflected this recognition that God is already at work. Uh, we call this prevenient grace, the grace that goes before, that God, that God, even before humans enter into the picture and start talking to people about the gospel, God has already been at work. He's already working in people's lives even before we get there. So as the people of God wanting to share the gospel, we're just looking for opportunities to see how God has already been working in their lives and help them recognize it. Um, take them along on, on, in the journey. Help them connect the pieces that God is already drawing, them, drawing in, in their lives. And that's what Paul does for these people. Our job is to connect the pieces for people. A modern-day example of that would be um, the story of Neil and Carol Anderson, who in 1972, they left Spokane, and they moved to Papua New Guinea, and they became missionaries to the Falopa people. When they got there, the people, the Falopa people, they didn't have a written language at all. So they decided to, to work through that with this group. They, they helped them create an alphabet. Um, they started writing written uh, parts of their language. They eventually developed a dictionary with them. And then they started doing the difficult task of translating the Bible for them. And when they got to this part in John 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, they encountered a problem um, within that Philopa people. The problem was that these Philopa people did not have bread. They didn't eat bread. That wasn't a staple for them. You know what the staple of their diet was? Sweet potato. So they ended up translating the verses, Jesus saying, I am the sweet potato of life. Now, now when the Andersons decided to translate Jesus' words differently, were they corrupting the word of God? No, they were actually making it accessible to people who didn't understand the Jewish culture. Now, I think that's an important principle for us is that the good news is about Jesus. It's not about our culture. We shouldn't have to teach them how to be an American in order to tell their story about how to follow Jesus, right? It's about Jesus. 
We're following the lead of the Spirit to offer hope of Jesus to the world. So as we close this series, as we close this sermon, allow me to just offer a few, three action points that I think Paul gives us in sharing the gospel with others. The first one that I would mention is to find common ground. Uh, Start with where people are, right? Figure out where they are in things. And I think that's affirming prevenient grace, affirming this grace that God is already at work in their life. And I, he's been at work in their life even before I got into the picture. So that takes a lot of pressure off of me as the sharer of the good news, right? That, that I'm just looking for ways that God has already been speaking to them. And, and Paul did this by not quoting scripture, right? Yet he was thoroughly biblical. He wasn't using... A, a scripture that they wouldn't have understood. So he's communicating themes um, in understandable ways. So look for ways to connect with people where they are, right? Second thing I'd just point out to you is engage their world, their worldview, um, see where they're coming from, but also don't be afraid to challenge it. After spending some time connecting, Paul, Paul's speech, he's complimentary, right? He, he compliments them, but he also starts exposing some of their misunderstandings of, about God. So in Paul's situation, he spoke about how God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He doesn't, he's not served by human hand. He's not like an, an image made by human design and skill, Um, So he starts pointing out some of the misunderstandings they have about God, right? And that's that's an opportunity for us to to think through that. We maybe see where they're at, and we start having conversations about, well, what if God isn't like the way you see him? Maybe he's something different. And just walking with them in that journey of, of seeing God maybe in a different way. And then the third piece that I would give you is the good news for all people. We see in Paul that he continues to promote this inclusive idea that humans are God's offspring. All of humans are God's offspring. Not just the people already in the synagogues, not just the people already in the churches, but God wants us all, right? He wants all of us to repent and turn to the Lord. He wants all of us to experience grace and hope, um, salvation, People of God are comprised of all people who repent and believe in Jesus. <clears throat> all those. And we, ce- we celebrate that this morning, right? With the baptism that we are going to take part in. So this morning, what has God been speaking to you about? Have you already received the good news that, that God has for you? Have you responded to the call of God to repent and choose to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, to find that salvation that he wants to give you, right? And do you hear the call of God to share the good news with others? Those are important parts to this this whole story of the book of Acts, the church and its mission, right? So pray with me as we close this service together. Lord God, I just thank you for the opportunity that we have to experience all that you have for us. (laughs) We're so thankful that you just continue to reach out to us, that you desire to have relationship with us, that you continue to offer us opportunities to find 
relationship with you and hope and salvation in you. Lord God, help us to experience your grace in our lives. We want to receive everything that you have for us, Lord. Maybe there's some here who haven't received you. Maybe they haven't had an opportunity to, to just say, Lord, please forgive me for my sins. Allow, I want to experience the salvation that you have for me. Forgive me of my sins and allow Jesus to be my Savior. Lord, there's others of us who have received that message of salvation, and we, we've experienced that in our life. And now, Lord, we have an opportunity to share it with others. Would you help us to be willing to, to find common ground with others, Lord? Try to meet people where they are. Talk about important things with other people. Not just politics, but Jesus. Help us to find opportunities to challenge people when the time is right. Help us to be a part of your plans in their lives. Lord, help us to be the people that you have called us to be. And we just desire that more than anything, to be the church. Just thank you for all the work that you're doing in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. Give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.